0: Hey, good morning. My name's Jeremy. Uh, thankful to be with you this morning, and um I'm particularly thankful for the splash zone that has existed right here. That So I know I spit when I preach, so these first three rows, you're going to be safe. You guys, I'm not so sure. Um, okay, we've been in this Revelation series for a few weeks now, uh, and we're really getting to sort of the meat and the heart behind how to understand the scope of the whole book. Uh, and normally, when I say the word Frederick Nietzsche, maybe that's not what would bring warm fuzzies or make this feel like the second happiest place on earth. Uh, but one of the first things that when I'm reading and studying for every week that I'm thinking about is what is the central theme of this passage? Like in one word, what would it be? And the word for this week, in case you would like to know, is power. How do we handle power? How do we mishandle power? And what does the, the, the particularly the book of Revelation, but what does the gospel have to say about how we use our power? So according to Nietzsche, uh, One of his key concepts was the will to power, meaning that what he believed as a fundamental human motivator, and actually a fundamental motivator for all of the created order of things, is power. So he says this. He says, do you want a name for this world, a solution for all its riddles, a light for you to... You best concealed, strongest, most intrepid, most midnightly men. I don't know what midnightly has to do with anything, but I'm going to try to use that phrase every week from here on out. This world is the will to power and nothing besides. And you yourselves are also this will to power and nothing besides. He's saying there is something inherent to being a human that we strive and long for power. Psychologist Alfred Adler would then take that, and he lived around the same time as Nietzsche did. He would take some of those teachings and sort of psychologize them. And he would go on to say that he posited that the reason why we all long for power is because we are all fundamentally insecure can I get an amen? Uh, Right? For maybe as far away from Jesus as you would think that these two guys would be for mentioning on a Sunday morning, they are scratching at something that is true. They are scratching at something as I believe many thinkers over the history of the world have scratched at certain universal truths but haven't been able to put the complete picture together. Because the Christian worldview enters into that and says, well, yes, we are fundamentally insecure because we live in a fundamentally broken world. We are made for perfection, but that perfection has been lost as we have alienated ourselves from the creator and life giver of all things. And so because of our rebellion against God, we no longer have this perfection and peace and shalom that inside we know is real and true and should be. And instead, what we have is entropy, which is everything in this world moving from order to chaos. Can I get an amen? Again. So if the ship is sinking, who's gonna bail it out? Where in your life right now do you feel like your boat is filling up faster than you can peel the water back out of the boat? That's the place where Jesus wants to meet us This morning. Because you and I fundamentally are going to believe that it's going to be my power that's going to save me. It's going to be my power that's going to save my family. It's going to be my power that's going to save my workplace. It's going to be my power that's going to save my political beliefs. It's going to be my power that's going to save perhaps even what I believe to be true theologically. But what we're saying is we cannot bail out this boat quick enough. We need a power outside of ourselves to lift us up in all of the places that we're falling. So that power is what we're about to read about. This is like Carter family band up here today. So we got Nathan killing it on electric, and now Emily is going to come up and is going to read Revelation 5, 1 through 10. Come on! hope you brought your binoculars there to there.
1: and I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. In between the throne and the four living creatures, and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing, as though it had been slain, with seven horns and with seven eyes And by your blood, you were ransomed people for God, from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. The word of the Lord.
0: Thanks be to God. Thank you, Emily. Wonderful. So again, a lot going on in many of these Revelation passages, so I'm going to try to distill it down to two images to draw your attention to this morning that will both help us to orient us in our insecurity in this world that we feel in all the ways both inside of us and outside of us that we feel like we aren't enough and will secure us in this need for power that we have in its true source. So those two images are first, the lion, which is the source of true power, and second, the lamb the use of true power. So let's look at the lion first. Most, most scholars believe that the book of Revelation is sort of seven rotating visions that are ultimately, I've said this before, but that are ultimately looking at the truth and reality of who and what and where Jesus is right now, what he is doing, what he is like, what is his heart, and they're looking at it through these seven different facets like a diamond. And so we're, we're sort of in the same vein taking what are seven aspects of our Jesus that is, are being magnified in the book of Revelation. And that is kind of how we're structuring our walk through this thing. So, so far we've done, and they're all Ps, again, to help. It's uh, an easy memory kind of thing. And also, I think, on the little sermon notes thing in the back, you can fill in these Ps. So uh, go find that. The first is the perspective of Jesus. So we started out in the first chapter really focusing on asking the question, what is Jesus' perspective on the world right now? Like, what's he doing? What's he like? Where is he headed? And what we see is this vision as the curtain is unveiled of the one who is sitting on the throne the glorious holy god seated on the throne again sort of what we've said every week is that the thesis the theme of the entire book of revelation is Jesus wins so Jesus is winning right now sitting on the throne then we moved on to the the presence of Jesus meaning in what way is he doing that work? As he sits on the throne, is he just sort of aloof and far off and just sort of waiting for us to like be tired enough that he'll come back and fix everything? No. He is near. His presence is close. He is the image of he's walking among these seven lampstands, which represent the seven churches of the day, the seven sort of pillar churches. And in the same way he walks among us by his Spirit, even at Midtown Creef Hall this morning. Then finally, where we're at today and the next few weeks is the paradox of Jesus. To answer the question, how does Jesus win? We know that we have this image of him on the throne. We know that he's working amongst his church right now. Now, in what way is he working? How is he using all of that power seated in in and on his heavenly throne in our lives here today in the city of Nashville and around the world. And here's where this paradox starts to bloom. This passage describes two different things happening, two different descriptions of the same God that also find their way throughout the entire scriptures. And they are two things that seem to be mutually exclusive. Because for instance, like Psalm 2 talks about a God who sits in on his heavenly throne and laughs at the kings of the earth as they try to scrap and scurry and vie for power. The Lord holds them in derision. He will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. That's in the Bible. That is a description of who and what God is and what he is doing which feels very dissimilar from the way that God reveals himself to Moses in the book of Exodus. In chapter 34, the Lord passes by him and hears what the Lord proclaims. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness one of these things is not like the other. These feel like two different gods. And actually some in initial readings of scripture, you may have come up with this in your own, like the first time you tried to read the Bible and you read all of this like mean, angry God in the Old Testament and all you see in the New Testament is like, well, Jesus seems to be like loving everybody and stuff. These two things don't seem to be able to coexist in one God. But the truth is, and what Revelation 5 describes is, we need both. We need a God who can be both and hold both in tension, who can be both powerful and gentle at the same time. Here's why the scroll. The passage here opens up with this image of a scroll. And John sees a mighty angel holding this scroll. And you would think that if anybody could open the scroll, maybe it's this giant mighty angel. And yet, nope, what we find is this mighty angel is one who's looking around saying, can anybody open this scroll? The scroll in this form written on both sides is very similar to a Roman contract of that day. And it could be a contract in any form. It could be a business dealing. It could be a last will and testament. But it would be something that would be signed as I want this to be done, and it would be signed and sealed and delivered to whoever would open it and then enact that will. And so in the same way, since the scroll is in the right hand of the of God who is sitting on the throne, this is saying this is God's will. Sealed inside the scroll. Who can do it? And they look left. And they look right. And they look in heaven. And they look on the earth. And they can find no one who can enact God's will. No one who can bring his will, his perfection, his shalom, his beauty, his glory, everything you long inside of yourself to be true about your life. There is no one found that can bring that truth and reality to the earth. And we say, in the words of my second grade self, no, dir. Did you guys ever say that? That's so fun. I got some head shakes, no. Right? Some yes, right? Thank you, right? Uh, no, duh. We've, we've tried this. Like, human history is filled with attempts at trying to make perfection happen in this world we tried it with politics. We tried dictatorship, oligarchy, monarchy, democracy. We've tried it all. We tried it with free market capitalism, socialism, nonprofit GMOs that are helping feed food insecurity across the world. We tried it with psychology, with cognitive behavioral therapy, the power of positive thinking, trauma work. We tried it with religion. We've worshiped literally everything under the sun, including the sun. We've tried it with entertainment. TV is this opiate of the masses that everyone will just learn all they need to know and be happy with one another. We've tried it with education. The internet was supposed to be this thing that when it was introduced, that because we now had enough knowledge to understand each other, that world peace would happen. Is that what we find true in the world of the internet today? No, the very opposite thing has happened. We have tried fixing ourselves in our own power and it hasn't worked in the history of the world. Insecurity still reigns. And so like John, maybe you've had a moment like this where you look at the disarray of your life and you just weep. You look at the brokenness of this world and you weep. You look at the mess inside of your own heart and you just weep. Who can fix this? How can this be made better? I've tried in my own power to do this life and I just wind up exhausted and lonely. Who can help? Who can open this scroll in my life? And then this elder picks him up, stares him in the face, and says, verse five, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Summary is, God and God alone can fix what is broken. God and God alone can bring heaven to earth. Calling back from the very early chapters of the Bible, Genesis 49, this lion that is called to be one who roars, God is likened to this lion who roars and makes everything right. We need a God who has the power to roar over this earth and make it right. I could insert an Aslan quote right now, but I won't because I'm trying to be better on time. But have you gotten there in your own life, in your own personhood, to borrow some words from the recovery community, has your life become so unmanageable that you need a higher power to intervene? If so, this image in Revelation 5 of one who is like a lion and one who is like a lamb is for you. So image of the lion, we need his kind of power. But now, how does he choose to use that power? Second image, the lamb. So John, at least in the way I imagine this, he's looking this way and he's talking to the elder and the elder's saying, hey buddy, buck up. There's a lion and he's sitting on the throne and he can handle all of this. And then he wheels around to look back at what he's expecting to be a lion on the throne, fulfilling what the elder is saying. And when he whips around, what he finds instead is a lamb. And not just a like, you know, healthy-looking lamb, but one who looks as if it had been slain. I don't know exactly what that looked like, a bloody lamb, a matted lamb lamb, a lamb who perhaps in some way was disfigured. He sees a different image, a completely different image from what he was expecting to see. And I imagine if he were me in this moment, no, no, no. I wanted, I'm agreeing with you, elder guy. I want that kind of power in my life. I want the evil and the wrong and the brokenness of this world. I want somebody to come and roar all of that out of my life and laugh at all my enemies and fight for all of my rights. Yes, I want that kind of God. But part of the imagery that's being borrowed here is from the book of Isaiah, chapter 53. It starts like this. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. Because if we want evil to be eradicated in the world, then part of what we have to wrangle with is that we are a contributor to the evil in this world. In our insecurity, we have forced our will on others and tried to make our own way in the world. We have used the power that we have and lorded it over people. We have hurt them with our brashness or grown silently cynical about all the wrongs that we see in this world and withdrawn. We have roared loud as lions at our kids and our spouses and our friends. And we have broken relationships deeply because of things that we have done. We have clamped down with control over our health or our money or our political beliefs, not allowing God to have a say because I know what's right. And Isaiah 53 goes on to say, And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. If God were to eradicate the world of everything evil, he would also be eradicating us. And so we need not only a God who is a lion, we need a God who is a lamb, who is gentle and lowly and sacrifices himself, lays down his power so that those who do not deserve it like you and I can be lifted up. Isaiah 53 goes on to say, he was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. You ever wondered why when jesus is being falsely tried persecuted on trumped up charges why he never defends himself why he never says hey hey guys wait you got the wrong guy and here's why why he never calls down a legion of angels when he's on the cross like a lamb who's silent before his shearers he's saying for all the ways that my people have been blasphemers have been anarchists who have thrown off the God off of the throne and have put themselves on it. For all of those ways and those curses that are being hurled at Jesus, he's saying, yes, 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 that is me because that is my people and I am standing in their place. And like a lamb led to the slaughter, like a sheep before his shears, he was silent and open not his mouth, and on the cross, stands in our place, taking all of the curse for the evil that you and I have brought into this world, absorbing it into his self, and casting it as far as the east from the west for those who believe in him. We need a lion. We need a lamb. Verse 9 goes on to say, worthy are you, And we say that together this morning. Worthy are you, Jesus, to take the scroll and open its seals for you were slain and you ransomed the people for God. And get this, this is next week. You have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. And now in the same way, that Jesus has used all of his power and laid it down for us. Now he has created a people who he has enabled and given all kinds of power, seated us in heavenly places, given us eternal life, given us internal inherent, uh, inherited riches beyond measure. And now we get to lay those things down for the sake of another in the same way that he has done for us. I'm going to close with a story. Marjorie Perkins... Uh, an 87-year-old dear woman uh, from Maine, on July 26th of this year, she wakes up at 2 a.m. with a young man standing over her bed with a knife. She's a widow. She's alone. And (laughs) apparently he says, I'm going to cut you. And she responds, I'm going to kick you. And so She kicks, she fights, she gets a chair between him and her. Uh, He hits her in the face, and she winds up, you know, eventually with this chair still between them, wearing him out. He gets tired enough and begins to say, I am so hungry. He says, quote, "I I am awfully hungry. So she goes to the kitchen. And she feeds him a box of peanut butter, honey crackers, two protein drinks, I imagine they're those little insure things, (laughs) and two tangerines, and I'm sure she peeled them for him. And then she calls 911 on her rotary phone as he eats, and then he collects his things and walks out the door, and the police capture him shortly thereafter. Power is wielded differently in the kingdom of God. We have new opportunities every day where we could lord over and instead we go low. We reign in the same way that he did by laying down our lives for the sake of another. And one particular way we can do that that we're going to exercise here in just a minute is in the way of prayer. There is nothing weaker than prayer. You're literally sitting there doing what feels like nothing. But look at this little, what seems like a throwaway verse. Uh, Verse 8. Each of these elders bows down before Jesus, and what are they holding? Golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Do you believe your prayer does nothing? It is being stored up in heaven and has that kind of efficacy and that kind of dignity that it would be held in heaven, effective, using uh, really part of God's will being poured out in the world through your prayers. Let's pray. So Jesus, we repent for all the ways that we have asserted power in our own way for all the ways that we have white-knuckle-controlled things that are not ours to control. And Jesus, we ask that you would more and more enliven us to the reality that that is not how you have cared for us. That is not how you have approached us. That is not how you've dealt with us. The kids back in the back are learning the prodigal son story this morning. That is how you've dealt with us. You, like a kind father who had all power to cast away and say, I want nothing more to do with you, instead has chosen to keep a watch out day and night, heart longing for your people to come back to you and then lavish love with robe and ring and party when we return. Because that is you, that can also be us. Make it so in your name. Amen.